book, The Warmed and Bound Sessions. I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Warmed and Bound is an anthology published by Velvet Press, consisting of just under 40 short stories, all by authors who are members of or involved in The Velvet, which is an online community of authors and fans of the trio Will Christopher Bear, Craig Clevenger, and Stephen Graham Jones. Warmed and Bound was released Friday, July 22nd. Gordon Highland is the author of the novel's major inversions and the forthcoming flashover. A member of the Velvet since 2006, he is a site moderator and one of its most frequent posters. Gordon has been directing videos professionally for over 15 years and lives in the Kansas City area, where he also enjoys writing, recording, and performing music. Gordon was kind enough to take some time out to talk to us today. Gordon, uh, thanks so much for coming on. We've been waiting a while to talk to you, so we really appreciate it. It's really exciting for me, too. I've been listening to a lot of these podcasts, and I couldn't wait for my turn. Well, thank you. I want to start off by telling the listeners a little bit about your story that appears in Warmed and Bound, Headshot. Sure. Uh, Headshot was written, actually, specifically for the Warmed and Bound anthology. I I don't really have, um, I don't write very many short stories. I don't have them just sitting around in the can. So um, the idea was I wanted to be respectful to what I assumed the themes of the uh, anthology were going to be before I'd actually seen any of the stories. (laughs) Just having been on the Velvet, you have a, a feel for you know, maybe what they're going to be about. And it sort of subverted my expectations somewhat, but that's what I was going for originally. Um, and it's not, you know, uh, I, I kind of knew what I was going to be going up against the different people who would be in there, not in a competitive way. I just mean in wanting to belong. And uh, so I kind of went outside my usual style. It's more violent and plotty. And historically, most of my stuff has been more like character based. But uh, also, you know, I can't resist a good twist, for better or worse. It's something I've been trying to get away from because I tend to prefer the st- short stories that I admire and others tend to be more open-ended type of endings. And I have a real hard time, for some reason, writing those. Um, but in this particular one, there's, there's a couple of twists. The uh, There was no like major inspiration as far as a, uh, a central image or no cool lines or anything like that. And that's how a lot of stories start. But in this case... For some reason, I just had the idea to um, to juxtapose two different styles of writing uh, by starting with a, a scripted scene, by which I mean like a screenplay type scene. And there's a reason that it's scripted, a story reason for that. And then to contrast that with uh, some more flowery, traditional uh, prose fiction type writing, which is written that way for a reason as well. And that was sort of both for the forms themselves and you know their own limitations and their advantages. And then uh, on top of that, I threw in a, um, a nonlinear aspect to the story, which kind of is the twist reveal by putting the beginning at the end. The, the plot of the story itself, I, I kind of just wanted to do something that was kind of noir-y, where no one was innocent. It's all shades of gray. And um, I'm a producer for a living. That's what I do. I make videos. Not a Hollywood type, but I kind of have some insight into that. And a lot of my themes in my stories have to do with a lot of media type people, musicians and writers and uh, filmmakers and whatnot. And uh, in the practice of doing that in producing, you got to break some eggs. And that's kind of what the story is about. Like, you know, those, those, uh, from those eggs, the, the chickens come home to roost, if you will. And there's also a little bit of uh, a, a creation metaphor going on in there, not like to an inception type level, but just the whole idea that when you start constructing something, uh, it, it, it adapts and changes on you and uh, become something different than what you set out to control and create. And that happened to me in writing the story, and the story kind of became about that as well. 
the structure um, was very, very interesting. And you mentioned a little bit as it starts out uh, kind of like a screenplay and then moves into more of a traditional short story. And I just thought it was great that um, you know your main character is certainly a Hollywood type and that you took that approach with the screenplay start um, and then switched it up a little bit. It was just fantastic. Thank you. That was, it was a, a challenge. I uh, kind of got my, my writing start, if you will, when I was interested in first starting writing was after college, and screenwriting was really interesting to me. wrote a bunch of shorts and uh, a feature-length script that was terrible, and I hope no one ever finds my hard drive. Uh, it's sort of like you, you, know, you, you, get, you got your porn buddy that comes over and cleans out your stash when you die, hopefully, before your parents catch it. I hope someone comes over and cleans out my old writing folder before any of that gets unearthed. But yeah, the screenplay thing, that's kind of where I got my feet wet with writing, and I, I got frustrated with it after a while, and that's why I turned to more prose fiction, because just the limitations, you can only capture what, what the microphone can hear and the, the, the camera can see, but in a story like this, knowing that I would be able to turn that on its head later, it was exciting, limiting myself to those, those two senses of sight and sound, and it changes the way you write from a very left-brained sort of uh, approach. Um. Talking a little bit more about the screenplay aspect of the story, did you have any concern about some of it being lost on someone who doesn't know the more technical aspects of a screenplay, like uh, the abbreviations for off-screen and stuff like that, or is that just kind of, uh, it comes with the territory, I guess? I did, uh, and there's a little bit of both. I, I was aware of those. There's like abbreviations for off-screen, foreground, uh, a few little, there's not too many of them, but some things like that. And, foreground, uh, good. See, foreground's <laughs> the one I didn't get. I got off screen. FG, yeah. <laughs> you said it, yeah. Foreground, FG, BG, W, S, C, U. You know, you don't want to get into all the camera angles and stuff, but I kept those out. But uh, Pela Via, the editor, did raise some concerns about some of those. So I tried to keep them minimal, but I left them in for a little bit for authenticity. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, in reading it back, I didn't think it was really too confusing. I'll agree. It was just something that I... I, I imagine you would at least had to think about, um, but I do think that that screen play uh, feel uh, it, it, it entered the story with a, a nice simplicity, I believe, which I thought was nice, and then it got kind of more complex as it went. Yeah, there was a um, thank you. There was, um, in fact, the scene kind of starts over twice. I'm, I, I start with like the steady cam shot through the living room and detailing all the the scenery and props and whatnot, and then later, <clears throat> excuse me, later there's uh, an intruder. And we show the same thing, and I'm just like, I just said something to the effect of, eh, it's a more harried version of what you already saw. Because in, in screenplays, it, you know, the idea is to get to the point as quickly as possible. You don't want to tell the director what the what lenses to use and, and you know how to move the camera. But the way you write it can dictate. You can sort of direct on the page without looking like a dick about it by saying, so if you say uh, the phone, well, it's got to be a close-up on the phone because otherwise it would be a wide shot of a whole room. So there's little tricks like that you can use. And I, I, I did rely on a lot of those techniques to try to just paint the visuals in your mind with using as few descriptive words as possible in that section. And just because you had mentioned, and I wasn't going to bring this up because I don't, you know, it, it's got a little bit of a twist at the end. So I don't typically mention that there's a twist unless somebody else brings it up first. But I will say mm -hmm. this, you did get me to flip back a page. <laughs> and kind of and kind of reread a little bit, which was really nice. And and when I say that, I'm always I like that. You know, it's kind of like um, going to see Sixth Sense and then having to watch it a second time just so you can see what you know what you missed the first time. Now knowing what the ending is, kind of thing. So My, so kudos uh, to you there for turning it into something that actually made me flip back. You know, page <laughs> or two to to kind of reread and and shake it off and go, oh yeah. 
Thank so. you. I don't want you to feel taken advantage of, but I do want you to have that aha moment where you want to flip back, not because you have to. But I did uh, the first draft that I did of that wasn't quite as clean. I think it was a matter of going past tense with the um, it wasn't as clear that the end of the story was really the beginning of the story. And I'm not giving anything away by saying that that uh, so I went with uh, past tense in the end which uh, I had originally kind of cut it up, I think, into a few more pieces possibly. I can't quite remember, but it's clearer now than the original draft was, and some of that is in thanks to uh, Miss Via. Um, I have a thought. You know what? Yes. I, I was just going to say real quick, I, I don't want to jump into too much of other discussion, but that idea of the, the rereading and whatnot, that has always been, I think it's almost kind of a crutch of mine, but that's been a hallmark of a lot of uh, both the books that I've worked on. I have... It's that reread factor that my first book, Major Inversions, you get to the end and you realize it's a twist, but it's not one. You know, you can enjoy the story for what it is, but when you find that out, then you want to go back through and find out all those references that I made very much like The Sixth Sense, except they spelled it out for you at the end of the movie with the shots, <laughs> you know, the little montage, which I was okay with. But the uh, I, I just kind of want that aha moment. And in my current book as well, it, it's a lot of extra effort for me to go through and sort of future-proof it as I'm writing, because I know what that's going to be. So I have to plant all those seeds, you know, to, to, to make it believable. I just wanted to say that the story title headshot is a very nice play on words. Uh. <laughs> Thank you very much. It, it dov- definitely is a, a dual meaning, and I think uh, fans of noir uh, will, will appreciate that. It was one of the first things I came up with when I started on the story was headshot, yeah. <laughs> It also sounds kind of, it's got a vaguely Elmore Leonard kind of quality to it as well, I think. <laughs> great, great. I liked it a lot. Can you tell us a little bit about the extent of your involvement at the Velvet and how you came to be involved with it? Absolutely. I followed the same path that probably 80% of the people you'll talk to follow, and that is because uh, Chuck Polinick, who I was an early fan of uh, back in 2000, I joined his fan website, uh, The Cult, and um, when he mentioned that Craig Clevenger's The Contortionist Handbook was the best book that he'd read in five years. I had to find out what this cat was about, and then I found out that uh, The Velvet was Craig Clevenger's sort of fan home in addition to his site. So I hopped on over there, looked for a little bit, joined up first thing, I think 2006, and then um, I kind of... uh, the, the, The thing that I came to love about it wasn't just because of getting to hang out with people who love Clevenger, it was sort of that direct access to the authors. I hadn't had that before. And at the time, Will Christopher Bear was still around for a little bit. And Stephen Graham Jones, who was super gracious with his time um, on all things, writing, reading. And he's like a fan, just like we are. And it's cool to see him get excited. But but that kind of direct access to the authors is really what kept me there at first. And then over time, you've probably heard similar stories from people that you learn it's, it's not just about books, even though that is sort of our, our MO, but... These are people that I consider my friends, and they're they're my my trusted tastemakers, if you will. will. The great thing about having a community of people who are united by their love for a certain you know type of work, themes, and things like that. The great thing about that is it you know it sort of pre qualifies their taste in other things. So movies and music maybe to a lesser extent but so i mean all of my book recommendations come from one of the social networking sites that or forums like the velvet and uh they've never led me wrong so that's how i got there uh there was a point uh two or three years ago where it started getting 
too busy for the admin to keep up with a lot of the requests that were coming in. So he kind of branched the site out and had some more more staff help. And we established various hierarchies of um, people at the forum based on the um, the game of tongues from Will Christopher Bear's Penny Dreadful book. And there are what are called breathers, which are moderators like myself and a couple of few others. And then there are redeemers. And then there are the gloves, who are the uh, the head honchos. And those are all layers in this fantasy game portrayed in that book. And so we moderate content. We generate news articles or we report news articles and uh, try to just kind of keep conversations stoked as far as creating articles and finding people to interview and things of interest and booting out spam bots and shit like that. So that, that's sort of where the Velvet is now. We have, I think, last time I checked, I think we have about 2,000 actual users. But if you look at the people who post on a regular basis, I'd say there's about 40 to 50 regulars at this bar that we call the Velvet. Okay, talking about Warmed and Bound a little bit, you made a really ridiculously cool trailer for Warmed and Bound. And um, we put it up on our the front page of our website just kind of because we're doing all these interviews. So um, do you want to talk a little bit about that process or is there anything um special or interesting about that you'd like to mention yeah i think so and i appreciate you guys sharing that because the more the merrier i want to get the word out i uh i'm really proud of that trailer it didn't uh it kind of uh kind of snowballed on me a little bit we we had talked about you know kind of putting together um, us meaning some of the folks behind the scenes at the velvet and the anthology you know kind of getting all of our uh getting the armory stocked our 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 uh promotional efforts in line and uh i feel like my strengths are in creating things but i'm terrible when it comes to sort of boots on the ground type of door-to-door street teaming type things so um they asked me uh because they knew that that uh, they asked uh, pela asked if i would uh, create a trailer and we tossed around some other ideas some things that were more viral type videos maybe a quick little scenario where the book is a character in this little made-up story and none of those really took off yet maybe someone will make some fan trailers or whatever, but the idea was to um, just use imagery that was inspired by some of the stories. And I had not read, but five or six of them myself at the time. I worked on this uh, a week, one week before the release of the book. So I had Pela, who was intimately familiar with these for months and months of editorial. I had her send me a list of the imagery that really stood out to her from the stories without me having to read them. So she sent me this list and I was going through it and they're very specific. And I was like, there's no way I'm going to be able to find (laughs) stock images of things like this. And I don't have time to shoot it because pretty much all the time that was left was sort of like animation time. So um, I broke that down further into more base elements of of that list. I was able to find some free stock that photographer sharing websites had put up. And I got I received four or five pictures, uh, friend submissions who were able to find interesting things. So not every image in this trailer directly corresponds to a story i'd say maybe 80 percent of them do but the others are just to kind of give you just to continue uh evoking that same feel that sort of dark ominous noir sort of uh you know that the idea was to just get you interested in in reading the book i showed the trailer to my parents and they're like i have no idea what the stories are about in there but from watching that trailer i know that you know there's some probably some kid stuff that's disturbing, you know, some some body parts, maybe some gore. And I was like, you know, that's cool. So the, the technique that I used was uh, in lieu of shooting a bunch of video, which was my original plan if I'd had more time to work on it. 
I took these still photos and I broke them up, uh, cut them out into layers. And it's a technique called multiplane animation or two and a half D instead of 3D, which is basically moving 2D um, elements in a 3D space. So you cut all these pictures up into layers by depth. So stuff in the foreground, midground, and background, or FGMG. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, and then uh, uh, you have to, the problem is if you're going to move a camera around that, you have to paint in all the crap that's missing behind the stuff that you just cut out. And that's what's really time consuming. It's a lot of Photoshop work, and they're trying to rebuild some of the background so that when you shift to the side a little bit, the you don't fall off the edge of the planet. Uh, the actual animation was fairly simple, and I did the music in a couple hours uh, the night before, like right before I had to upload the trailer, I had to throw something together really quick. Um, but that's that's the genesis of the trailer, and I just wanted something to evoke the feelings behind Warmed and Bound and get people excited about wanting to buy it. Yeah, when I saw the trailer, and, and Rob and I have talked at length <laughs> about book trailers, and they're, they're very hit or miss. There, there are a few out there that are really good. Um, you know, Caleb Ross did one recently, and yes. you know, it's just fantastic because it's funny and it doesn't take itself very seriously. So <laughs> I see this link and I go, okay, here's a book trailer for Warmed and Bound. And I, I'm really just ready for just anything. And I click it and just got totally sucked right into it. At That's that point, awesome. I'd read several of the stories and the feel is absolutely 100% spot on with the book. It's a fantastic job. I really job. appreciate that. I wanted to avoid, because I feel the same way you do, that book trailers are hit or miss. I don't like being shown or told what a character in a book uh, sounds like or looks like. Does that mm-hmm. ruins it for me? So um, this is a little different because it's an anthology. So, you know, you don't really have that central character or anything like that. So it was less danger of that. But I also decided not to narrate it for the same reason. I don't want to do the in a world, you know, (laughs) kind of thing. So I just decided, you know, let's let the images speak for themselves. We'll throw some music under it and tag at the end on, you know, how to buy it. But I really appreciate that. It means a lot that, that people really dig the trailer. I didn't realize that you did the music as well. I know that you, um, uh, just from looking on your website and stuff, are into music, and I, I guess you could you call yourself a musician, I'm assuming. But um, yeah, I didn't know that. I knew you'd done everything else, but that's really interesting that you did the music too. You're the whole deal, huh? Yeah, kind of a renaissance type, you know. Uh, what's the jack of all trades, master of none? You know. You... Um, do you want to tell us a little bit more about what you do musically? Is that just kind of a pastime, or is it something you do more actively? Uh, to me, writing and music are basically my two main hobbies. I, I make videos for a living, so it's not very exciting to me to work on, you know, a lot of films and stuff in my spare time. So I try to basically, whatever I'm most excited about in any given moment is whatever I'm not being paid for, because that's kind of where the passion is, right? <laughs> so uh, the problem is the two butt heads a lot, and I can't work on fiction writing when I'm doing music, because they kind of, you know, it's the same space of the brain, and I kind of, I need, I'm hyper-focused, so I'm a terrible multitasker, so I need to do, like, a month of music and a month of writing, etc. But yeah, I've been playing in bands on and off since college. I have a home studio uh, here at home, and I do little musical projects by myself and with uh, another person. We've currently got a duo that I'm working with on a really good friend of mine named Shannon Lips, and our duo is called Winebox, and it's basically a lot of uh, kind of soulful acoustic music. I was calling it progressive blues, but that sounds really pretentious as hell. But, uh... (laughs) progressive blues i don't even know what that is so we're trying to get that off the ground we've been working on that together for a while but uh yeah i'll do a little music project here and there just sort of one man banding it um i play you know guitar bass and keyboards and between the three of those with some synthesizer in there you can pretty much make a a pretty full sounding uh uh recording the thing i don't like is um 
I don't like using loops and MIDI and all that kind of stuff. A lot of that, there's a place for that kind of music and some of it I enjoy, but I like more kind of naturalistic sounding things for myself. That's evolved. I used to really like progressive metal and I tried to play as fast as I could and as complex as I could anymore. I just feel like if you can't express the song with an acoustic guitar and a, and a melody line, then it's probably not a very good song. So I've been trying to kind of simplify over the years. But yes, I, I did create the music for the the trailer, just something really, really quick. And I had my headphones on the whole time because it was like 11 o'clock at night and I didn't want to piss my neighbors off. I live in an apartment. So I was just praying the mix sounded okay because like you can't trust you know your headphones when you're mixing that. You mentioned that um, screenplay writing was kind of a gateway into fiction writing for you or book fiction writing, I guess. What was the inspiration for you to get into screenplay writing? It came straight out of college, pretty much. My degree's in broadcasting, and in college, you know, you write a lot of scripts for um, shorts and uh, TV commercials and, and things like that. And uh, that's where I caught the bug for it. I took a screenwriting class from someone uh, in school. And so right out of college, that's kind of what I wanted to do. That's where I got the bug for it. And I, I feel ultimately that probably that form probably plays to my strengths the most because I'm a really visual guy. And sometimes I'm not as good at putting those visuals in prose form as good as my peers anyway. But in a knowing cameras inside and out and what they can and can't do and the techniques and the grip equipment and stuff that, that it takes to achieve a visual, that I feel very, that I'm, that's a strength of mine. So, uh, you know, I thought that would be the ideal way. I have some creative ideas and, you know, maybe I wouldn't direct the piece, but I, like a lot of people, I kind of dreamed of selling a screenplay. There's sort of that lottery mentality because you sell one script and, you know, you could be set for five years. It never really panned out. And that, that frustration, like I mentioned with uh, the story headshot is what led me to doing um, prose fiction. And it was also after I got back into reading prose fiction after uh, Chuck Palahniuk, especially who reintroduced me in a legion of young disaffected males after getting back into reading and then getting excited by that kind of stuff, because his writing to me was like a movie. It was very cinematic and tight and visceral and minimalist. And it, like I could see the movie right on the page. Maybe that's because I'd already seen the movie you know, in the theater <laughs> before. But, but with his other books, the same thing. And then I discovered similar authors to him that were doing that as well. And I got really excited again. But then I would seek out you know, some other authors and I was reading them and it's kind of like, this is what sells and this is what's popular. And I had that sort of sometimes inspiration comes from if they can do it, so can I. And that that's what really caused me to pick up the, the pen again. Talking about inspirations, can you name other other uh, major inspirations for you other than what you've already mentioned? Yeah, it's hard to say if he's an inspiration or not, because he's been more recent the last couple of years. But Michael Shabon is my favorite writer. Um, I like his wordplay and his um inventiveness and I've never seen anybody that can spin a metaphor with as much skill as that guy has and he kind of is always changing his rhythm and the sentence the ordering of the sentence is always kind of playful and keeps keeps it moving around the other thing I really appreciate about him is he had has a huge vocabulary which I cannot match but he doesn't send me scrambling for a dictionary because he finds ways to show you what the those words mean within the context of his sentences and I really admire that uh, guys like, and again, these are more recent um, people that I really admire. Uh, William Gay, a lot of the Southern Gothic writers. Uh, Don Pollock's new one is really good in, in his first short story as well. I can't write like those guys at all. Um, someone like Christopher Moore is probably more up my alley. He um, he, he writes with, uh, uh, well, he's got like two different, really two different fields of, of writing. There's his really kind of throwaway, almost genre fiction vampire stories and then there's his more literary stuff. And even he admits that he's 
it's, there's a clear divide between the stories he spends a lot of time on and the ones he has to get in on deadline. And so those that he does invest more time in, like A Dirty Job or Lamb or Fool, I really like those books. And um, and I could see myself writing stuff like that, Nick Hornby, uh, people that kind of combine tight uh, writing with a, sort of a, a sense of humor are, are people that I really admire. <laughs> Going back to Chris Moore really quick, because when you said that, um, when you said the thing about his two different types of writing he does, mm-hmm. it <laughs> you and I must have heard the same NPR interview because he got interviewed in NPR. I I don't know how when it was, but it was within the last year, and that's exactly what he said. Like he has those serious novels that he writes that are he does a lot of research and he spends probably a couple of years, you know, doing the research for, it. and then he mm-hmm. has the other ones that essentially afford him the privilege of. <laughs> of yeah. taking all that time to do the research. So that's really I fascinating. That then, yeah, then he has Fluke, which I still to this day can't, can't fathom. <laughs> you can't let it go. I've, I've, read, I've read every one of his books, and Fluke I got halfway through, uh, I think, twice. I think the second time I got almost halfway through and just had to throw it down. Other than that, I loved everything he's done. <laughs> it's, it's just, it boggles my mind that he admits that. It's almost like mm-hmm. you'd think his fan base, his normal fan base, my, his genre fan base, I guess, might be insulted by that, but he's like, you know, look, I do these to pay the bills. And it almost surprises me he doesn't use the pseudonym for one <laughs> of the other. And then, then you've got a guy like, uh, what's it, I think his name's Tyler Knox, the guy who wrote uh, Cockroach. It's sort of a modern retelling of the Kafka uh, Cockroach metamorphosis thing. And he is the guy who wrote this really amazing literary fiction book called Cockroach, but he's normally a genre writer. And he took the pseudonym, the pen name, uh, Tyler Knox, to write this book. So it seems very... <laughs> Sort of like the opposite. Usually, you write literary fiction, then you go slum it under a uh, you know under a pen name of this guy. He didn't want to alienate his genre audience with this kind of more high art book. And it's a fantastic book, by the way. I recommend that one as well. But yeah, Chris Moore, I just love the guy. You're right. He spends a lot of he'll live overseas in Paris or whatever. Yeah. And that yeah. Shakespeare book, I don't even want to know how how much research that required. Yeah, no kidding. It's 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 funny though. Like I don't think that I would ever be offended. You know, like. I was thinking the 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 best example I can think of is the stupidest angel is the story he wrote or the book he wrote that it's just absurd but it's so entertaining that I think that <laughs> anybody could forgive him for it just because of how entertaining and fun it is. Yeah, I got a lot of comparisons on my my first book. I got uh, uh, Nick Hornby is my first book was basically um, sort of a first person tale, sort of the the sarcastic you know, cynical narrator, everybody, it suffered a lot from some first book syndrome issues, but there was some cool metafiction going on and a lot of pretty sentences, but it, uh, the, the comparison I got was Nick Hornby because there's a lot of musical content there. And I would say Christopher Moore as well, just because that my inability to keep a straight face. <laughs> I'm really glad you mentioned cockroach. I read that several years ago and it's something that I read and I think it just, I don't know. I didn't give it much thought afterwards, but I really, really enjoyed it. And yes, definitely a book that's highly recommended. Awesome. Rob, are you familiar with Cockroach? I have not read it. It is. Um, it's about a. Uh, it's about a cockroach who wakes up one day in a human body, and using <laughs> its cockroach survival skills to make its way in our crazy world. And it's done very seriously. It's not. It's not at all funny. I mean, it, no. it's a little funny in parts, but I mean, it's done very seriously and done very, very well. He's getting used to his his human body, and it repulses him. <laughs> That's a neat juxtaposition, I guess. A little bit like the uh, in Men in Black when the you know the guy comes uh-huh. down and he is in the human body. I, I envision you know that somewhat like this stupid thing I've been saddled with. <laughs> oh, all right, it's on the list. 
you may you mentioned uh, major inversions again, and in, in kind of the uh, the learning curve there from that to your second book. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you learned about the publishing process specifically? That's something you can share with other aspiring authors. Yes, I learned that um, it's probably a good idea if you have commercial aspirations, which I was just kind of writing the book to almost get it out of my system and like check off the fact that I'd written a book. At least it started that way, and then my aspirations rose during the course of the writing. But I think, you know, it's good to maybe start off with a logline, sort of a one-sentence synopsis of what the book's about. So you can always kind of zone back into that when times are hard. And I did not have that. I have this very kind of varied and very thorough history of this this character study. And the first book is kind of meandering and really funny and a lot of witty observations and all that. But it's not until like the second half kicks in that it's like picks up and becomes a page turn or whatever. But so that's one thing I learned to maybe try to write to a, a more um, specific target. And then um, so I found myself when I went to start sending the book around, I tried to hit up a bunch of agents first and I had just no interest whatsoever. I had some nibbles for, from some publishers, but it just took such a long time. And so I've decided my next book, when I get it done, I'm going straight to self-publishing. I just don't I don't have the patience to wait. You know, because it took it took me four plus years to write the first book. I spent two years shopping it around, and then finally put it out. And this book, it will have been three years by the time I get done writing it. And uh, I just, you know, my my uh, my references start to expire after a while. I don't want a book out there five years after I wrote it. Um, so you did mention your next novel, which I believe is Flashover, right? Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Now this I'm excited about. <laughs> Isn't everybody excited to talk about their work in progress? Given the my experiences from the first book, it's very much sort of a response to that uh, process-wise, story-wise, not so much. But the things I learned from that, it's an, an antithesis. Um, I went away from heavy characterization, and it's, it's a lot more dependent on um, plot and sensations and, and stuff this time around. There's no disclaimers needed. The the uh, if you read the jacket cover, you'll know what it's about, and just right away. Uh, it doesn't plot along at the beginning too much. We kind of get into things, and things it's it's more of a page turner. Things are moving more quickly. I had more uh, deliberate commercial aspirations this time, even though I probably will self-publish it. The idea was to kind of take something, not get so caught up in originality, which has been sort of a crutch of mine for a while. You, you fight so hard to wait for that great idea, and then and then when you ultimately find out that there is nothing new under the sun and someone's done it, it can be crushing. And this time I just embraced that because my story, uh, some of the elements in it are very uh, con- conventional. So I've got a, uh, a person who has, you know, some questionable clairvoyant gifts. And that's been used a lot at TV shows, Lie to Me or The Mentalist or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I, I didn't want to make that a focus, but I wanted to use that uh, in the story. Basically, the, uh, the synopsis is this guy... Um, small town fellow is uh, roofing a church one day, re-roofing a church and his pa- his ladder comes in contact with the power line and it kills him. And, uh, he's, he comes back after like seven minutes of death and he's, uh, very scarred and he's completely deaf and he's, uh, convalescing in the church rectory. The priest takes him in cause he's racked with guilt. And, uh, so he's living there recovering over a long period. And during that time he meets, uh, the love of his life, this very angelic, kind of perfect, ideal woman and her daughter, and they form a very fast, intense relationship. And then what happens is uh, she just vanishes one day, and the the second half of the book is his his search for her, basically. 
So a lot of times we've seen people with these abilities be sort of that reluctant type, and he, and he falls into that as well, like that um, Clint Eastwood movie Hereafter. So this time it's personal. That's sort of the different spin on it that I did. I know that sounds terribly cliche, but it works in the context of the book because he has to embrace that and uh, try to you know find a different part of himself to sort of navigate uh, a depraved world uh, to find these people. And the, the thing I did... Uh, is it's two narratives that converge. It's his story and her story, and they're all going on at different times, and you get about three-quarters of the way through the book, and they climax at the same time. So that that's the story of it. I, it should be out hopefully next uh, spring, April-ish. Very cool. All right, now to put you on the spot a little bit. <laughs> of what you've read of Warmed and Bound, whose story would you say is really stand out? I've read maybe six or seven of the stories in Warmed and Bound, and my favorite of those... It's been Gavin Pate's story. It's called All the Acid in the World. I really like that a lot. And I haven't – one thing that was really special about that is I haven't seen a lot of work from Gavin. He, he had a really excellent novel called The Way to Get Here or Way to Get to Here. I'm not sure which. Um, that he released several years ago, and I loved it. And he has several short stories out there, but I hadn't seen anything from him in a while, and that story really blew my mind. See, Livius, he did it the good way where he said he read a bunch of them, but he didn't say who the authors were that he read. So <laughs> that's, the, that's the safe way to do it. Yeah. Okay, so talking a little bit more about Warmed and Bound authors, um, we saw that you recently did a reading at Slap and Tickle Gallery in Kansas City with Caleb Ross and Brandon Teets. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about readings and uh, what they do for you as an author, I guess? Yeah, I... I love readings. I would love to do more of them. Uh, Caleb and Brandon um, and myself all live in the Kansas City area, and uh, I've only done that one with the two of them. They have some other events they've put on themselves. Brandon is very much a socialite, club kid, nightlife kind of fellow, and he's he's very into. I mean, that's his that's his demographic is sort of that superficial club scene and i don't think he'll mind me saying that <laughs> it's, it's very common to see like chicks hanging out by the pool with a copy of his book and photos and whatnot so uh i've been kind of left out of, of some of those but we did this reading together a while back at a, one of those kind of hipster art galleries and it was a good time i really enjoy doing readings live because it, it uh i don't get nervous with public speaking and i feel very confident about that and i like to think that a lot of my work translates pretty well to being read aloud, at least by myself. And I, I, you don't want to get caught up doing character voices and stuff like that. There's some people who can, who can pull that off. Maybe I don't even try. I basically do. I'll do like the narrator type voice in a certain thing. And then I'll just jump. I'll differentiate the voices just enough so you can tell who's talking without seeing all the dialogue tags in there. But I don't want to turn it into too much of a performance piece, but the, yeah, the readings, the ones I've done have, uh, gotten pretty good responses we did another a really big group one at the last the next to last uh awp conference in denver i know there was one in um i uh, was a dc i think this year that i did not attend but we put up a a velvet reading night and there were probably like 15 of us or so that, that did them and those stories are actually posted on the velvetpodcast.com each one is an episode um that i recorded for them and uh, those went over really well just kind of found this coffee house place and it was a chance to see you know, I was meeting a lot of these people for the first time, these people I've considered my online friends for so long, and it was neat to see them translate their own work and, and see how they would emphasize certain phrases and whatnot compared to the way that, you know, I had read some of these stories already compared to the way that I had uh, seen them. Can you give us one author you'd like to see here on Booked? There's a cat named Fred Venturini 
who wrote a really excellent book called The Samaritan, uh, which is sort of a, I guess you'd call it like a superhero origin story, a little bit like the movie Unbreakable. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't really read like that though. It doesn't, you would never think it was, it's not comic booky or anything. It's sort of, he's the reluctant guy and it's very much sort of a general fiction uh, type book, but I thought that was fantastic and he, he'd be a good guy to, to have on. Um, the other possibility, uh, is a guy who wrote tobacco stained mountain goat, which is kind of making the rounds. And that, uh, that fellow's name is Andre Bergen. I assume it's pronounced Andre. It's A-R-A-N-D-R-E-Z. He's a Australian a Japanese fellow. But just a really, I mean, he loves talking about about not just his own work, but just, you know, just writing in general. And he's extremely approachable. He will tell you, you know, he, he's an open book when it comes to his work. And I think you guys really enjoy talking to him. Great. So, Gordon, uh, I think we can kind of uh, assume that Flashover is kind of in the mix. But can you tell us uh, what you're currently working on writing-wise? Yeah, right now. I'm uh, a couple short stories in the hopper. I've uh, never been much of a short story writer, and I'm hoping after I get this next novel out of my system to just concentrate on those for a few years because I feel like I'm very much behind my peers in that regard. You, most of them took sort of the opposite approach, so I don't have a whole lot out there. Um, right now, I'm working on a piece that uh, probably some of your other uh, uh, guests have been doing as well. There's a uh, anthology coming out in the fall. Um, called In Search of a City, Los Angeles in a Thousand Words. and has to be exactly a thousand words based on, uh, it's sort of a photo book. Each picture is supposed to inspire a story. I'm working on something for that that's a picture of a the underside of a billboard. I'm about halfway done with that. And I have a story coming out. I'm not sure when. I think it's uh, maybe early next year. Um, I did a story for this. It's uh, to coincide with the release of an album by the the legendary band Paris and the Hiltons. They're putting out a uh, a, a book and a CD together, I guess, and uh, it's sort of like a combination literary thing. So he found a bunch of people, the guy who runs the band, Phil Jordan, uh, a bunch of people to contribute to this sort of mythology of the band with these fake stories of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and he just gave us free license to make up whatever we wanted. So I wrote a scathing review of their second album per his request and it was a lot of fun to do that and that one's called the fudge shop caleb mentioned uh caleb ross who also worked on that too mentioned it and it sounds like such an interesting concept to kind of tag along uh you know with a band in a kind of fictional way it's just really neat and i'm looking forward to reading it it's definitely right up caleb's alley because caleb's always looking for i think sort of different approaches to material and things that can engage the reader on different senses he, he's a big fan of metafiction just like i am as well and this is definitely right up his alley he, he's got a story in it as well did you um i'm assuming that since you're writing for this project you've you've listened to some of the music and stuff but uh caleb mm-hmm. um asked us to put one of their songs on the intro i think intro outro for his interview that we did and that song he gave us was i thought it was great it's I, nothing like i expected but it was really really interesting and, and kind of offbeat and strange yes that was uh, i'm not sure if that track was from the first record or not it wasn't from the one i i saw his interview um it's not from the one i'm working on this record was called fracture and slice and it's their second album and you can download it for free from uh pathrocks.com p-a-t-h short for paris and the hilton's rocks is there anything else you'd like to plug tonight, Gordon? I don't think I need to plug anything else, but I, I do. I did want to mention how much of a pleasure it was working with Pelavia, and I, I cannot. I'm sure people have mentioned her a lot, but she deserves 
every bit of it. Uh, her and I have worked together quite a bit historically. We have a pretty good rapport offline outside the forums as well. And she was in my um, my Right Club group last year. You've heard some people talking about Right Club. Mm -hmm. And Right Club is basically a, a short story workshop that's a closed forum that lasts one year, 12 months that uh, for long form projects that you critique. And you subdivide that into smaller groups of four or five people who each review each other's novels. And her and I were in the same group last year. And uh, she shredded my work pretty good for the better. And, uh, and I, hers as well, we're both very honest with one another, but I have nothing but respect for her. And part of the, you know, my, part of my contribution to Warm and Bound is just not wanting to disappoint her. <laughs> but I've been, I've been fortunate. I, I enjoy editing and I've, I've done um, editorial passes on like probably five or seven books that have gotten deals, a lot of them coming out of Right Club, but also from some other people. And it's sort of rewarding and, and validating to, to see sort of your stamp on someone's work who has some success. Great. Hey, Gordon, you want to tell us where people can find you if they're interested Perfect. in seeing more? Yeah. Sorry. Perfect. Exactly. <laughs> We're just going to cut that in. You don't need us. You don't need us. You can do this on your own. I spent a lot of time producing voiceovers. I don't need to produce you guys, too. You're perfectly capable. By the way, seriously, you guys have been doing a wonderful job with these, and I can't believe at this point you're not just phoning them in by now. There's so many of us involved. I really, really appreciate you guys taking the time and, and interest to get involved in, the, in these stories and, and help us promote it at the same time. Oh, thanks. It's, um, it's been fantastic getting to know everybody, so it's really it's, – um, as much labor as it may be, it's, it's very, very rewarding. Gordon, why don't you tell people where they can find you? My homepage is gordonhyland.com. You'll find all kinds of stuff on there from the writing links to musical things to video things. And uh, there's a pretty decent-sized blog archive of all kinds of media articles that I've written over the years about, you know, those same pursuits. Thank you so much for uh, taking some time to come on and talk to us. It's been really, really great talking to you. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, guys. Yeah, a big thanks to Gordon for coming on. He was a really engaging guest. Um, you can find uh, everything by Gordon Highland at gordonhyland.com. And you can find his story Headshot in Warmed and Bound, which was released on Friday, July 22nd. That will just about wrap it up for another episode of Booked. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. Come back tomorrow for another Warmed and Bound session. Mm -hmm.